In his epistle to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul expressed his personal heartbreak that his church in Galatia, what today is part of modern Turkey, had been corrupted by deception. The Galatians were no longer trusting in the Savior, Jesus. They had lapsed into a doctrine of salvation by works, by keeping Jewish customs. Previously, Paul had graphically preached to them about the sufficiency of Messiah's substitutionary death on the cross to satisfy God for the forgiveness of sins. And they had responded joyfully and had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then other teachers came along and insisted that the gospel message wasn't sufficient. Jewish customs must be adopted as well. And so Paul rebuked them. He cried out, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. Christians and Jews are forging new and strong relationships. I enjoy the recovery of the Hebraic roots of our faith. I believe it's important to rediscover our Hebraic heritage that's been neglected for centuries by the churches. We owe a debt to the Jewish people for preserving the Holy Scriptures and for giving us the Savior from the tribe of Judah and especially for writing the Bible. There's so much insight that we can learn from the Hebraic cultural context in which the Bible is written. The New Covenant simply cannot be understood or properly appreciated without an intimate knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. Bible scholars often say that the book of Genesis is absolutely foundational to understanding all the Bible. I've been personally blessed by biblical scholars who think Hebraically. However, born-again believers must stay true to the simplicity of the gospel for which Jesus, Yeshua, gave his blood, body, and soul. You see, there's a big temptation, and this subject needs to be addressed. It's tempting for believers in the Hebrew Roots movement to become enamored with Jewish traditions and to be seduced into thinking that it's not good enough to be a Christian. The more we engage with our Jewish brethren, the temptation for many professing Christians is to think that we need somehow to adapt into being Jewish or to keep the law of Moses in order to please God and to be saved. I've known of Christians who've converted to Judaism, but in my opinion, they probably were never really born again in the first place. Because when you know Jesus, you'll never give him up. Some people in the Hebrew Roots movement go overboard, insisting that we need Jesus plus the Sabbath, or Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus the Torah. Throughout the history of the church, this sort of era has been called legalism or Judaizing. And yet we have to be careful what we label as Judaizing because not all Hebrew roots teaching is Judaizing by any means. Just because I enjoy the insights of rabbinic scholars 
doesn't mean that I've been Judaized. For example, one of my former pastors in Jerusalem often brought us tremendous illustrations, insights, for example, into the Lord's Last Supper, the Jewish Passover Seder. Because as a Messianic Jew, he knew the Hebraic roots of our faith. He did believe in salvation by faith in the atoning death of Jesus, Yeshua, yet he experienced opposition within the church hierarchy for his teachings. His detractors wrongly accused him of Judaizing, but he was simply explaining the Gospels in the cultural context in which they were written. An anti-Semitic spirit opposed his ministry, even though he held services on Sundays and he didn't try to convince people to keep the Sabbath or to convert to Judaism. He simply explained the gospel through the eyes of New Testament Jewish culture. After all, the first Christians were Jews. They still went to the temple on the Sabbath, but they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus on Sundays and breaking bread together. Recently, a friend on Facebook made a public post saying that she was fed up with her Torah study group. She had grown weary of the group, always condemning other Christians for not keeping the Sabbath and for not pronouncing the name of God a certain way and so forth. She said they set themselves up as God's elite and looked down their noses with haughty pride on others. They're all about law, 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 she said, and express no love for Messiah or appreciation for the cross. She said, I'm staying away. They're toxic. Well, that was one person's experience. Yet on the other hand, I've participated in Torah studies where none of that sort of superior spirit was exhibited. You see, the church has a lot to learn and to recover such as the importance of celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when those events actually occurred during Passover. Jesus and the apostles never celebrated Easter. That pagan name is associated with a fertility goddess. But Passover is the biblical feast when the Passover lamb was killed sacrificially. And Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Passover and not Easter is the correct time to remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. This year, our ministry will celebrate our 21st Passover convocation in Israel to honor the Lamb of God. We'll remember His death, burial, and resurrection in sync with Passover when these holy events of the atonement actually occurred and fulfilled many Bible prophecies. Why should churches commemorate the Lord's death and resurrection at the wrong time? The Gospels clearly tell us that Jesus died at Passover and He was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. Well, if the Apostle Paul could visit some of the churches today, he might very well rebuke congregations like he rebuked the Galatians. Paul wrote to them, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting Jesus for a different gospel, even though there's really not another gospel. 
Only there are some who are disturbing you, he said, and they want to distort the gospel. But Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul was so dramatic that he repeated himself. I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Well, before he was converted, Paul had persecuted the early church. But now on the other side of his dramatic Damascus Road encounter with the risen Lord, Paul's doctrine had diametrically changed. He once hated Jesus, now he preached Christ crucified. But Paul certainly hadn't lost his strong personality. He dramatically pronounced a rabbinic curse, anathema, on those false prophets. Also, when Paul departed from his congregation in Ephesus, he wept because he foresaw that savage wolves would penetrate the flock. He said false teachers wouldn't spare the flock. So Paul didn't mince words. Even from your own number, he said, men will rise up and distort the truth. Why? He said, in order to draw away disciples after themselves. And it still happens today. False teachers are always drawing away disciples after themselves. The Lord Jesus warned his followers repeatedly to be aware of false Christs, false prophets, and false teachers. In light of various ongoing controversies in the church, controversies such as Judaizing within the Hebrew Roots Movement and the ecumenical movement that wants to unify Charismatics and Roman Catholics, I'd like to say that it's been so healthy and refreshing recently to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Reformation sermons and teachings that I've been listening to have been like a booster shot against error and a refresher course in basic Bible doctrine. It's vital to revisit the Reformation and to renew our understanding of the great price that the Reformers paid, some of them with their life's blood, in order to recover the biblical truth of the complete reliance on Scripture as the only source of proper belief. The Reformation also taught the essential Christian doctrine that faith in Jesus alone, and not faith in our own righteousness or the law, but faith in Jesus is the only way to obtain God's pardon for sin. We need to understand these biblical truths that the Protestant Reformation recovered. During the days prior to the Reformation, the church had become so corrupt that people were bewitched into buying indulgences. They were enchanted into thinking that they could pay money for themselves and for their departed loved ones to escape hell and purgatory. Rather than relying upon the crucified Savior for their salvation, they fell for the lie of hoping to pay money for their salvation. Well, the Apostle Paul expressed his personal heartbreak that the Galatians had fallen into the deception of trusting in good works for their salvation. They were no longer trusting in the Savior alone. They had lapsed into a works-faith doctrine. 
So he wrote in Galatians 3.1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Bewitched is a shocking word. And this is the only verse in the Bible where bewitched is used. I did a word study. And in the Strong's Dictionary of Bible Words, bewitched means to cast an evil spell or to wish injury upon somebody. It can also mean to exercise evil power over a person. Synonyms are to captivate, fascinate, and spellbind. Bewitch also means to appeal to vanity and to blight by the evil eye. In classical Greek, I learned that Aristotle used bewitching to describe putting someone under a spell so that they could no longer think straight or act according to reason. It's also associated with the evil eye, an idiom in Hebrew denoting envy as opposed to somebody who has a generous, bountiful eye. So Paul was saying that Judaizing teachers had drawn away the congregation's eyes from looking at the simplicity of the gospel, and instead, the Galatians had become spellbound by legal observances. Well, the New International Version rendered Galatians 3.1 like this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. They were foolish because they had allowed themselves to be robbed of their happiness of gospel liberty. The contemporary English version says, You stupid Galatians, I told you exactly how Jesus was nailed to a cross. Has someone now put an evil spell on you? Another translation renders Galatians 3.1, You foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you? And yet another version says, who has cunningly deceived you? Well, the 19th century scholar Bishop Lightfoot offered an interesting paraphrase of Galatians 3.1, and I'd like to modernize it a little bit for you. Bishop Lightfoot said, Christ's death in vain? Oh, you senseless people, what bewitchment is this? I portray Christ crucified before your eyes as if on placards, but you allowed your eyes to wander from this glorious proclamation of your king. Instead, you looked at the withering eye of the sorcerer. You were riveted and fascinated, and as a consequence, the life of your souls was drained out of you by that envious gaze. That's powerful. Paul said he had placarded the Messiah with word pictures before their eyes. He had preached so graphically that it was like the gospel had been written in large letters before the Galatians. Yet, they were fickle human beings. They had become bewitched. The false prophets came along and said that grace wasn't enough. The cross wasn't enough. The Holy Spirit wasn't enough. They said, you must maintain all the laws and ceremonies of Moses. And the Galatians fell for it. They left their first love. They became enchanted, and their view of the cross was clouded. Paul said, you've abandoned the Messiah and gone back to the law. 
But what about the outpouring of spiritual gifts that you receive by the Holy Spirit? Was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that you experienced due to the works of the law, he asked, or was it due to Messiah and your faith in him? So let's go back in time to the beginnings of the early church to sort this out. In Acts chapter 15, in early church history, we learn that certain people came down to the congregation at Antioch from Judea, and they were teaching the new believers there that unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Sharp disputes arose, resulting in the Jerusalem Council that's recorded in Acts 15 to settle the question of law versus grace. Now here's the catch about keeping the law that every believer and churchgoer must get settled once and for all in our minds. Paul and the Apostle Peter testified that it's impossible to keep the law perfectly. Only the Savior who never sinned could achieve that. After much discussion, Peter got up and he said, Brothers, God showed me when I preached in the home of the Gentile centurion Cornelius that God had accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter said God didn't discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. So now why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, he said, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as the Gentiles are also saved by Jesus. So in the end, the apostles and elders wrote a letter to the churches settling the matter. The document said that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following of four essential requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, abstain from blood, abstain from the meat of strangled animals, and abstain from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Amen. So Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and the apostles came to the conclusion with the guidance of the Holy Spirit that even if you could miraculously keep the law perfectly your entire life, yet if you slipped only once and broke the law just a single time, you're still guilty, full stop. You're essentially a lawbreaker. You see, a, a glass or a plate only needs one tiny crack to be broken. James 2.10 teaches us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. Think of that. If we're guilty of breaking a single part of the law, we've become guilty under the whole law. In fact, the New Testament says, the law is our schoolmaster to teach us our desperate need of the Savior. When we receive Jesus as Savior, his righteousness is imputed to us and covers us, and thus we become the righteousness of God. That's why the epitaph on the grave of my parents of blessed memory, Jesse and Sarah Cook, demonstrates their wonderful grasp of the gospel. They chose to be remembered by three words, Christ, our 
righteousness, meaning they were not trusting in their own righteousness for salvation, but they trusted in the righteousness of Messiah. They trusted Jesus' perfect righteousness because he never sinned. Jesus kept the law for all of us perfectly. And here's the thing. Legalists and Judaizers claim Abraham as their father, but even Abraham, the great father of faith, Abraham, Abraham was justified by faith and not by law. Abraham believed God and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Righteousness. 